Welcome back. If you have tuned in with us for the first time, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. If you're not even sure why you tuned in, maybe somebody invited you, and maybe it was a series that caused them to want to invite you, and you're not sure about God, we're glad that you're joining in with us. We're talking about God. We're talking about science today. We're talking about barriers and how to overcome this conflict that sometimes is perceived between science and God. This series called Barriers is designed for this reason, some hard questions are like barriers between us and God, but what if these barriers that block our way are actually signposts that point the way? We've been looking at four questions, and we're on question three. The first question was, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at how can you say there is only one true faith? Today, we're looking at hasn't science disproved the Bible? And next week, in conclusion, we'll be looking at how could a loving God send people to hell? Now, we're looking at these hard questions for this reason at this time, as we're in a Difficult time, filled with uncertainties, where our stress levels are rising um, over time, and the kinds of things that we keep hearing about, the bad news keep kind of uh, pulse in on us. We are susceptible to our faith, if we had a faith, to be attacked from these kind of barriers. And perhaps those who do not believe in God, all of these reasons are just coming against them even more firmly where the barriers seem overwhelming and to consider God seems out of the question. Well, it's to those questions that we're addressing uh, some of the hardest topics and they're heavy and sometimes I feel inadequate to adequately answer them. But uh, Uh, we'll just jump right in and give it a try. First, let's consider the case against the idea of God that some scientists have brought before us. And so we have several uh, quotes. Here's in the opening pages of The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Alex Rosenberg declares, there's so much more to atheism than its knockdown arguments that there is no God. There is the whole rest of the worldview that comes along with atheism. It's a demanding, rigorous, breathtaking grip on reality. One that has been vindicated beyond reasonable doubt. It's called science. Alex Rosenberg, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. Wow, that's a devastating quote to those of us who believe in God. And of course, that's, I don't agree with that quote. Maybe you do, and that's okay. We're glad you've joined us. Here, let's go into another quote that's like it. Steven Pinker states the negative case, the findings of science, imply that the belief systems of all the world's traditional religions and cultures are factually mistaken. Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and progress. Boy, if you are reading any of these quotes and many like it that are coming out in uh, rapid fashion from the new atheists, you'd think that the case has been closed against theology. The case is closed against the reality of God, that science has disproved the Bible, and so on and so forth. But that is not the case. And here's why. Did you know that the fathers of science, most of them were believers? The fathers of science itself, most of them were believers, like Galileo, Sir Francis Bacon, and Sir Isaac Newton. 
They would tell you the reason science works is because our world is ordered and designed and therefore predictable and can be studied by laws and principles. The laws of science are discoverable and predictable because our world is not random or accidental. Now, the reason modern science is built on the shoulders of believers is because believers alone look to the design and the principles and the laws to understand how everything is put together and discovered what modern science is built on. So far from the case being closed, this is true of the past, it's true through all the duration of modern science and true today. Many brilliant believing scientists are on the forefront, the cutting edge of scientific discovery and have a worldview that includes God precisely for some of these reasons. And so perhaps you didn't know some of the later beliefs and discoveries of modern science, including what leading scientists are believing today about the Big Bang. Let's go to that quote on the screen. Many leading scientists believe the Big Bang theory and say everything in the universe came into existence from nothing and that this was caused by something powerful, non-spatial, non-temporal, and non-material. Did you know that when this scientific theory first came out, it was more embarrassing to atheists than to believers? You can perhaps see why that is the case. Atheists were really bucking against this scientific uh, theory that was being promoted because it was undermining for this particular reason. Genesis begins with Genesis 1.1 and reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Big Bang Theory um, had science in all the formulations of observation of the universe, how the expansion of the universe and how the mathematical principles and theories bring it right back to an uh, originating point Although science was not trying to prove theology, it was in favor of theology and fits theology. And it even names who it is that's this non-spatial, non-material, powerful entity that brings power to the situation and births the universe in a big bang or a moment in time. So everyone is on a quest for learning and understanding our world. Point number one is this, if you care to write it down. Everyone has some light. We're going to talk about two general streams of light that God has provided to us. And actually, um, science is one stream, but we'll call it this instead of calling it science. We'll call it, A on your outline, general revelation. When truths are revealed and unveiled generally to the observable eye to the scientific mind, to the mind of science that has tools to begin to unveil the principles and the realities and what makes up a human body right down to the cell level. And what is it, how is it all put together? General revelation is a powerful truth that science is on board with, trying to understand our world. Well, in Romans chapter 1, 19 through 20, we read this. Since what may be known about God is 
plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul is developing an argument that there is the religious body of people that are without excuse before God in their religious approach to God, but there is the irreligious, the people outside of the knowledge that the religious people had that also are without excuse because God has revealed to them some light as well. And where is this light coming from? This light is coming from creation itself. And so Paul's argument years and years and years ago, 2,000 years ago, is this. If you're studying the general revelation, what is observable to our eyes in creation itself, what do you see? You see what should point us to a designer because in everything there's design. Whether you go really, really large and far away, there's design. Whether you go really small into the microscopic world, there's design. Modern science has discovered that that design is far more complex than anyone imagined. Darwin didn't imagine it being as complex as this. That even the smallest singular cells are more like cities of information and navigation that take place within that cell, how that cell functions. There's design there. There's information there. There's general revelation screaming to us saying, who who is behind this? How did this come together this way? General revelation causes us to ask these questions. In modern science, we are now discovering things about DNA and the genome project. And there's there's information that's built into the DNA strand that's huge and vast coded information. Never before has anyone ever postulated that a large paragraph of letters put together cohesively could be accidentally coming together. Somebody wrote those words. Somebody put the code together. Never before would you ever consider coming upon a a, a computer out in a front yard and think, I wonder what exploded all that metal and had it come together and work like this. When something works with such grand design and information processing, you look for the designer. You look for not just the architect designer, but the builder. And then if you look on the computer, you're going to find a label. And that's what general revelation does. It helps point to a label because the information itself demands us to ask a question beyond this is what it is, this is how it works, to who coded it, who designed it. And that's precisely where science falls short and doesn't want to ask the who questions because it's outside of the realm of science. But general revelation asks us to ask that question. So let's make this a little bit more personal. Let's just say that someone for whatever reason, jumped off of a cliff. What can science tell us about that? Science can tell us things about that event through physics. Well, splat and gravity caused the result and death and the cells did this and the blood did this and this is how this person died. But everything inside of us wants to ask a question behind the facts which science can't answer. Why? Why did this person jump? We want to know what were the events 
and the reasons going on inside of the mind that cause this person to jump. Science by itself doesn't ask those kinds of why questions or who behind the scene questions. Science is asking fact questions. Let me just say that meaning-seeking is quite different from fact-seeking. And when we start encountering some of the troubles that are perceived like tensions between theology and science, it's really precisely there where we've come into the most tension. The Bible, in Genesis included, is primarily answering questions that satisfy our meaning hunger. It's not primarily written to satisfy our fact hunger. And it does present facts, but it presents it in a way that's unusual and it's not meant to be a scientific treaty. It's meant to answer questions like, who is God? What has he done? And who is man? And what is our relationship with God? And what is the meaning of it all? And so begins the Bible. And so I happen to believe that meaning finding is got priority over fact finding. It answers the question, what is the point of all of these facts? And so just like the Bible teaches about me as a person, if it's only speaking materialistically about me as a body, from dust I am made and to dust I will return. But the Bible elsewhere is talking about we are not just explained scientifically from a materialistic position, we are also explained from a meaning position that I am more than merely dust. But if you are only observing what you can observe through general uh, revelation, through science and observation, you see that I came from dust and to dust I return. But now we get meaning that we are more than this and Genesis tells us we have been created in the image of God and we have a job to do to reflect that image and live to his honor and then there's a problem that came into the scene that caused all kinds of havoc that messed that all up and now the image of God is completely marred and evil has entered into the world and we have all of the meaning type questions being answered in this revelation. B, on your outline, is special revelation. We've been talking about general revelation. It's what's observable to all, that everybody has some light. Special revelation goes beyond what is generally available, but it's what God made available and reveals to us. The Bible is getting at meaning. Now, I'm here holding a Bible. This is a collection of cohesive special revelation. It is a collection that took 1,500 years at least to put together. If you mark from Moses at the beginning of the collection of the special revelation, you could go back earlier if you put Job in the time frame of Abraham, and you go through to Jesus, those are the 1,500 years where we start to hear the story of God explaining who he is, what he has done, who we are, what went wrong, and what he's done about it, and what he will do about it. This is a cohesive collection of special revelation. Now let me just talk about this a little bit more. It is special revelation that is not written by one man. It's written by at least 40 writers. Admittedly so, through all the writings, it'll say uh, written by so-and-so, but 
claimed to be a revelation from God and over a 1,500 year period. So let's just do a little test here. If you went through your neighborhood and I gave you 10 tough questions about moral issues or some other kinds of issues, a worldview, and asked 10 different people in our one culture at one time, you would probably get more than 10 opinions about those 10 difficult questions. Multiply that out by hundreds of questions and hundreds of different difficult scenarios, and what we have is something I consider nothing short of supernatural. That 40 different writers over the course of 1,500 years writing in two different languages and a third language too in between there in little, little sections have a cohesive, unified message answering these meaning questions and it all harmonizes and as it turns out, it all is about leading up to Jesus and Jesus fulfills it all. This is a remarkable book and I've been Studying it now for 40 years intensively and the more I study, the hungrier I get. The more I'm into it, the more meaningful it is. The more it satisfies my need for meaning and understanding and fuels my soul and refreshes my soul. This special revelation is powerful. Now, since the 1500 years, it's been 2000 years of skeptics trying to attack it. Skeptics trying to pick it apart. Skeptics showing inconsistencies and saying what men have said contradict each other. It cannot be God's revelation, etc., etc. The more I study it, the more it seems to harmonize, the more it seems to come together. It doesn't seem like it's falling apart. In 2,000 years, there are more followers now than at the beginning. And it's like this illustration I heard when I was a teenager. It's like an anvil. And skeptics' hammers keep blowing on it and hammering on it and hammering on it for 2,000 years. And all the handles of the hammers have broken off, but the anvil still remains. There's something to be considered here and something that is not going to be answered by science as it relates to the meaning of life and who we are and what God has done and who he is and how that's all coming together. Having said all of that, if we backed up from where we started in Romans, Paul already talks about special revelation here in Romans 1, 16 through 17, where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel means good news. And Paul's use of the word gospel, the good news, is specifically about who Jesus is as a fulfillment of the whole entire Old Testament literature, anticipating him, the fulfillment of the whole story in this cohesive good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now from Paul's worldview, he's saying, that's everybody. It works for everybody. There's the Jew and the non-Jew. The term for non-Jew is Gentile. So if you're a non-Jew, it works for you the same way it's going to work for a Jew. And the rest of his argument is to explain how Jesus works for everybody who believes in Jesus. For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I know that I've just spewed out a lot of theology. Let's get back to the concept of how does this theology fit with science? And so everyone has some light. Let's go to point number two. Light obeyed 
increases light. We've just talked about two different kinds of revelation, general revelation, which science is a master at studying and understanding the facts behind that. But special revelation helps us to find meaning in those facts and even general revelation points to the meaning behind the facts. And so light obeyed increases light. We're going to talk about the reception factor. This is the reception factor. If you don't receive what it's pointing to, you're going to have a problem. If you receive what it's pointing to, you're able to see more. And so it leads us directly into point number three. Light refused increases darkness. Light refused increases darkness. So we've talked about the revelation factor, the reception factor, and now here is the suppression factor. Let's take a look at Romans 1, 18 and 22. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. Now, I've heard in university settings about certain atheists claiming that we are fools because we believe in a God and we are suppressing the truth about reality. We're suppressing what is known about facts and we want to hang on to a fantasy that we are in the business of suppressing the truth. Now, I'm not saying that we couldn't do that. I think that we can do that. But this is talking about suppressing the truth by wickedness. So there's also an assumption that Scientists are brilliant, and we've met many brilliant atheists who are scientists. Okay, they have a high IQ. There are just as many brilliant scientists who are believers with a very high IQ. And I'll flip that for a moment, because we also talked about, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This too, historically speaking, can be true for the believing community as well as the scientific community. We get passionate about what it is that we believe and maybe even arrogant about what we believe and say things that are just hard and fast and in our arrogance later on are proven to be foolish in our thoughts and statements. Accurate theology will fit together hand in hand with accurate science. That's my premise. That if general revelation and special revelation are true revelations of one cohesive truth, then accuracy in both will somehow walk in harmony. Now, isn't it possible that some atheists have a motivation of their own to suppress the truth of the possibility of God because of their own lifestyle? That's what this is getting at. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If I'm going to continue on my own way, being independent of God, doing what I want to do, and not hear that there is a holy God who says what I want to do is wrong and will be judged someday, I might be motivated to find a reality and an interpretation of a worldview and a reality that makes me comfortable in my own choices for my own life. And so it's preference that opts for my interpretation of the data in front of me. So it can cut both ways. Neither scientists nor theologians have a corner on the market of being fools. 
We both have a tendency to be arrogant in our statements and assertions. The question is, are we going to humble ourselves and see how this might fit together? Is there a possibility that it actually does fit together? Because the information in DNA, the information in the, the design is pointing to something that seems to fit together. That's the point I'd like to make. I believe all truth is God's truth. Accurate science and accurate theology will go hand in hand. Richard Dawkins, on the other hand, believes this. He sees a universe that has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He refuses to look at anything outside of materialistically looking at it. There is nothing that you can say that is moral or immoral. There's nothing that you can say that is meaningful or not meaningful. Basically, we're nothing but a bunch of skin bags with an expiration date, and nobody cares when that date is up. It is a pitiless indifference. That's a pretty dark view of reality. There's something inside of all of us, I believe, that against the idea that this thing that I just saw is not evil. There's no moral issue here. Or this thing that I just saw is not heroic and good. It has nothing to do with it. It just is and just is and doesn't matter. There's something inside of me and I think there's something inside of most of us that have a difficult time going there. So what, what is Dawkins doing here? He's refusing to look at the light that has been revealed and choosing only to look through one lens and it's rather dark. So Dawkins' conclusion is not the conclusion of science, but rather the conclusion of someone who refuses to consider how coherent science is with the possibility of God. Science has identified information intelligence, and design in our reality. Science has also identified chaos, disorder, and death in that same reality. Neither of these are barriers, but signposts that are consistent with what general revelation and special revelation has revealed about God. Creation, the fall, and the hope of redemption that God offers. I believe that we have been given a double lens. General revelation and special revelation. And that if you look through both lenses and see how they complement each other and bring out a reality that fits together so well, that both of these realities, the goodness and the disorder, the order and the demise of order, and the answer all come together. But if you refuse to look at anything outside of science, you will put one lens cap on one of the lens, and you'll claim the reason why is it's pointing in a completely errant direction. There's no way these two views can be correct together. And so you're only going to look materialistically without the meaning factor explained behind it all. What's the point? And it's so dark. And in my life, looking through both lenses, I can't tell you how refreshed I am in my soul. 
I can't tell you how I over and over and over again come to the revealed special revelation of God and am encouraged and filled with joy and that my batteries can be running down emotionally and spiritually and in my faith and they're recharged and joy returns and I'm just filled with life just as Jesus describes a reality that's made available by what he has done. My life is not dark. I have light from Jesus. I have a Savior who's done something about the problem of my sin. I have a Savior who's done something about the problem of our world. I have a Savior who has done something, is doing something now, and is not finished yet, is doing something later. It brings hope and meaning to our existence right now in the middle of a darkness, in the middle of uncertainty, and we don't know where it's going, but our God does, and our Savior is here, and he loves us, and he embraces us, and he says, will you walk with me? me and we'll make it through to an eternity, an eternity of intimacy and joy and meaning and forgiveness and it'll be beautiful. I am taking care of things and I find great joy in looking through both lenses and I believe they fit together. In John chapter one, we are given a verse that just kind of is simple And it's a thought that just explains if you want to know God, what do I need to do? The simplest answer I can tell you is if you want to know what God is like and who God is like and what he's all about, get to know Jesus. Start in the Gospels. And here in the Gospel of John, we read chapter one, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I hope that inside of you something is just rising up to consider the possibility of God. Let's consider together both lenses that accurate science and accurate theology come together in a cohesive whole that reveals who God is, who we are, and how to get through this mess that we find ourselves in In this world, there is trouble. But I give you peace, and I have overcome the world, says Jesus. Let's walk with him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that if there's any who have listened to this message, who have faith in you, that their faith would be strengthened from faith to even greater faith. I pray that if there's any who have not really had faith before, but now they want to investigate further, I pray that you would plant that seed, water it, and allow that faith to grow, that a little light received would become a brighter light. And in obedience to that brighter light, they would find you to be walking right there with them and that you would be giving them peace and joy as I've been describing. Lord God, I pray that you would help us all to grow, to love you more, to walk with you, to move from wherever we are right now to where you would have us to be, closer to you, It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. If you have questions, seek out answers. There are prayer teams available. You can click on some of the links that your online platform provides you or make some phone calls, have some dialogues, continue to investigate how all of this fits together and it fits together for your good and forever. I hope to see you next week for the conclusion of Barriers when we ask a difficult question about how could a loving God send people to hell? We'll be looking at that tough question next week. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs>